I hate the use of the term local. You know, I joke that the Tampa Bay area is roughly the same size and population as Vienna, Austria. Do you think that in Vienna they refer to local theater? Hello and welcome to AI Arts In, the podcast sponsored by Creative Pinellas. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and today I am here with Keith Arsenault. You grew up in Florida. You came yep. here as an infant. Yep. My, my parents decided that they didn't want to raise a kid in Greenwich Village in 1953, and they moved here when I was six weeks old. If only they had known you were interested in theater, they <sighs> would have stayed in New York. Right? Well, I was doomed. My parents met doing Gilbert and Sullivan repertory at the Provincetown Playhouse on McDougal in Greenwich Village. And my mother did Broadway shows and worked with avant-garde dance companies. And my father was singing and acting and summer stock and off-Broadway. And they just decided that they wanted a fresh start. And did they stay in theater here? Oh, yeah. My mother ended up founding the dance program at the University of Tampa and also founded the unfortunately now defunct first professional ballet company in the area, the Tampa Ballet. And dad acted and sang and directed in a number of shows and everything around the area. Yeah, they stayed very busy. I, I, I literally have photographs of me in a playpen in the center aisle of the theater while they're rehearsing. But did you ever think to yourself, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to be a doctor or a nuclear scientist. Or There was a time when I thought I wanted to be a, a, a national park ranger. I thought that was pretty cool. And there's still a part of me that says that if you gave me a costume and allowed me to be a tour guide at Williamsburg, Virginia for the rest of my life, I would say yes. <laughs> But somehow or other, I was always going to be involved in the performing arts. You have a tremendous list of accomplishments. I don't know whether to call you a lighting designer, a stage manager, a filmmaker, a facilities uh, yes, empresario. Yes, yes. <laughs> so how would you describe yourself? I was just one of those people that whenever anyone asked me if I could do such and such for them, I said yes, regardless of whether I was really prepared to do that or not. And, and of course, then if you do it well, you're asked to do it again. I was already working heavily in theater when I was in high school. I had actually already done union stagehand calls, but I went into college as a music major because at the time I knew that the music program would give me the most flexibility to do the things on the outside. And if I'd gone into the theater program, I would have ended up being a slave to the theater program. So the entire time I was in college, the only thing I ever did for the theater program was be the music director for a show. But at the same time, I was actually being paid by other people to light their shows elsewhere. So, you know, I've worn this double kind of hat. I'm not really an active musician anymore. My wrist kind of went kaflooey. What did you play? Um, I played keyboards and Mm -hmm. low brass and also played rock and roll in every sleazy bar in the southeastern United States in 1970. It was one of those things when they when they asked us to start covering disco tunes, I said, eh, I don't need to do this anymore. I ended up with a degree in arts administration and everything but a senior recital short of being a double major in arts administration and music. So I've been on this multi-track path for a very long time. And curiously enough, I've just now finished lighting my 30th production for the St. Petersburg Opera which is the longest single professional collaboration I've had in in my life. But before I did that, I had pretty much not done any lighting design for five or six years. I was busy being a producer and working on major Fortune 500 shows and 
uh, producing my own national tour production. And then all of a sudden somebody asked me to light a show at the old Gorilla Theater that doesn't exist anymore. And the person who was designing that, St. Petersburg's Alan Lloyd, said, oh, I'm designing the next opera. Would you be interested in lighting it? And I said, yes. And now I am known as a lighting designer again. You said you produced shows for Fortune 500 companies, uh, like convention shows? Corporate, corporate events corporate for uh, Hilton Hotels, Paradigm Computer, Federal Express, Service Master Clean. I was actually the official voice of Service Master Clean as well. I can still go, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome President and CEO Mike Isaacson. So you do voiceover work as well I, for I've people? I've done voiceover, and I even have served as a circus ringmaster. So, <laughs> I produced a, um, a show called Circus Nexus Presents Rites and Rituals, which was a contemporary circus. And when we usually speak of contemporary circus, everybody thinks of Cirque du Soleil. And a lot of people just say a Cirque show, but I refuse to use the, the word Cirque, even though I do have French-Canadian roots. And it was a full-length production that was done in performing arts centers in major proscenium theaters around the country that combined uh, contemporary circus acts with very legitimate dancers. Mm -hmm. uh, we had dancers from the Pennsylvania Ballet and New York City Ballet uh, working in the show. And we toured around and played in major performing arts centers for about a year and a half, two years. Wow. And also I produced circuses for uh, some of these corporate events we did. And then I even did, I had the contract where I produced the traditional circus for the Florida State Fair for four years. And I love the circus more when it's in a tent because there's something magical and mystical about looking at an empty lot and then coming back the next day and then there's a city there on the lot with this amazing show and then coming back two or three days later again and it's an empty lot again. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a wonderful, mystical, magical feeling about that that unfortunately I think is lost on a lot of people, but it's never been lost on me. looking at your portfolio which you have online on YouTube and so we'll have a link for it and people can see it <laughs> what I was starting to see in the different photographs of your different productions was a very magical and kind of mysterious in its own way storytelling with light now obviously costumes and set and all that goes into the theater but as I was going through show after show after show and the use of light, for example, the use of light in, in Sweeney Todd, and it was so dark, and then the use of light in West Side Story, and so perky and continental, I guess. Well, I think lighting design, for, for many, many reasons, has become more and more and more important to uh, theatrical production. More and more productions are being done with a unit set, some sort of set that somehow has to serve the purposes for the entire production which means it then is up to the lighting designer to determine how we communicate day, night, mood, etc., etc. The set is there. The set's not going to change. It's not like we're going to fly in a drop that all of a sudden the sun is on as opposed to flying in a drop that the moon is on. So it's, it's up to the lighting designer to, to create that kind of environment. But also, you can't really do it realistically, because if, realistic, if you did it totally realistically, it look, would look terrible on stage. Uh, so you have to approach it with a certain creativity and, 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 and a certain magic. And then you're also responsible in many cases of being the person that makes sure that the audience is looking at that which they need to be looking at at that time. 
if you have a lot of dialogue that's jumping back and forth across the stage, it's your responsibility to make sure that th that's clear to the audience. Or if there's a scene that's been going on all the way downstage right and all of a sudden someone makes an entrance upstage left, unless there's a reason for them to make that entrance in the dark, you know, you, you have to be able and ready to, uh, to accentuate that. I really enjoy lighting the opera because I get to paint really, really pretty pictures on big scenery and then just make sure that the principles are in nicely soft puddles of light from follow spots, as opposed to doing musical comedy or Neil Simon, where I have to make sure that everything is bright enough that we can see everybody's faces and get everybody's reactions all the time. You're talking about lighting as the job that lighting has to do sort of technically. It has to illuminate a person who's speaking or entering a room. It has to direct the audience. It has to say, this is day, this is night. But very bad lighting can do that. Yeah. So, what's, <laughs> so what, what is good lighting doing you know, around those sorts of things? Yeah. Um, I've seen lots of bad lighting, too. And I've seen bad lighting on Broadway. You sort of, you got to have a feel for it that you know what's going to work and how it's going to work. And, and so much of my work has been at the Palladium lately because of all the operas and doing the St. Pete Opera season. And, and the ability to do shows over and over and over again in the same venue becomes actually an advantage because you understand innately what is capable in the theater, what the solutions are in the theater. The Palladium poses certain technical problems and issues for a lighting designer that are not necessarily apparent to the casual observer. The front of house lighting position, the lighting position that's over the audience's heads, is actually way too close to the stage and at way too high of an angle. So it creates really nasty shadows on people's faces. And you have to figure out ways around that. And hopefully that the director doesn't have everybody stand all the way downstage, toes on the edge of the stage, because you're just gonna go crazy trying to make their faces look nice. It's a collaborative effort. We work with the director, we work with the set designer, we work with the costume designers. We look at what the palette's going to be, how the palette relates to the musical content and the dramatic content. You know, we did Il Travatore. A lot of that's very, very dark and foreboding. I do dark and foreboding really well. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, you know, we do something like Elixir of Love, which is bright and springtime and happy and sunshiny, and it, it calls for a different palette of color. And we all work together to that end. But there's also the difference, too, in terms of tempo and rhythm. In a musical theater piece like Into the Woods, there may be close to 400 lighting cues. Well, that's more lighting cues than the last six operas combined. But that's the nature of musical theater. Musical theater is da-dum. Da-dum, da-dum, da-dum. We're here, now we're there. Now we're there, now we're here. Now we're here, now we're there, you know? Where generally speaking, in most operas, an act takes place in real time, in one location over the course of the act. Mm -hmm. And yes, there's lots of little changes and lots of little things that happen during the act that in many cases, the audience isn't even aware that I'm doing as a designer, where is in the first 12 minutes of Into the Woods, I can't begin to tell you how many lighting cues and follow spot cues it goes through in just that 12 minutes. Mm -hmm. And there's a real difference between the first act and the second act. In the first act, we have a slightly different palette for Cinderella's story than we have for the Baker's story. 
And then we have a we have a look for the woods. What is the palette for the baker and for Cinderella and for the woods? How how are they different? Well, the palette for Cinderella is very pink and fluffy. Think I think Barbie's home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whereas the palette for the baker and his wife is is very umbers and ambers and and, and earth tones. And their costumes are very much in, in that same vein as well. So as, as the lighting designer, do you see the costumes first or sketches for the costumes? The sketches, yes. Generally speaking with the opera, I often don't see the finished product of the costumes until we actually get into the theater because they are often done out of town. So we see photographs and, and, and such ahead of time. So the palette is kind of decided before you run into the discussion about lighting or are you part of the discussion yeah, about the palette? We're, we're, I'm usually part of the discussion from, I, I hopefully I'm part of the discussion from day one. Okay, so you were part of the discussion <laughs> with Barbie's Playhouse for Cinderella and... Well, the director and I talked about that mm-hmm. in, in particular. And of course, in the first 12 minutes of Into the Woods, it literally goes from Cinderella's story for eight beats, Baker and his wife's story for eight beats, Jack and his mother's story for eight beats. Back to Cinderella for eight beats. It's boom, 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 boom. It's all over the place. So you're having to make those changes in a way that makes sense visually without going crazy. And then all of a sudden, boom, everything falls apart. Giants falling from the sky. You have the woods, which can be both a happy woods and an ominous woods. I'm just imagining that if I was not hearing the singing and I was just looking at the lights, I would know a lot about these characters. I would hope so. Uh, I, I, I won't say that we're always as successful as that as we would like to be, but that is the goal. The second hack, you know, everybody talks about, you know, some people leave it at the end of Act One because happily ever after, everybody thinks, okay, it's the end of the thing. But now all of a sudden the second act is what happens after happily ever after. And just because you got all the things you want, there's consequences to how you got them. And uh, you have, there's, you know, the second act is much darker. Mm-hmm. It's much more adult, I mean, in terms of its, its perspective. We desaturate a lot of the color. Color comes down and, you know, we kind of gray out everything to a certain extent. So you're playing uh, with people's emotions. with Absolutely. This. And if I work against it, then we're all in trouble. Luckily, in this day and age where we have much more sophisticated lighting equipment, I have lighting equipment on stage that at any time I can call it up into any color I want. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, I would have had to pick this color filter, this color filter. We would have to put them on lighting instruments 30 feet in the air and they would have to stay there for the whole show. Now we have the ability to color mix and our, the lighting console gives us the ability to pull up whatever we want. It's much easier to do those kind of transitions now. And if, if, if we're in the middle of rehearsal and the director comes to me and says, oh, can you do X, Y, Z? Four or five years ago, I would go, eh, probably not. Now you go, yeah, sure, no problem. Because the technology's just changed. For the better, mm-hmm. for the better. So you're one of the talented people who can adjust to changing technology and... Yeah, gosh, I've been around long enough for it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I started when, when literally there was no computer control of lighting equipment. Everything was manual. You had to write down the levels of every dimmer on a piece of paper and play them back and use both of your hands and sometimes a foot as well to move levers up and down. And, you know, graduated now to where we have full computerized control, where all 400 some odd lighting cues are in the computer, and I won't even be there. Some people don't understand that. They assume that as a lighting designer, I'm there for every show because they still think that I'm operating the board. But, you know, you're programming the board. You take 
the, the entire score for whether it's an opera or a musical, and you write into the score exactly where every one of the cues happens in the score, the stage manager calls those cues, and the lighting operator basically all is required to do is hit the go button, unless something goes wrong, and then you better have a lighting operator, which we do, uh, who really knows how to deal with, because every once in a while something does go wrong. But uh, it runs without my aid and assistance once we're up and running. So walk me through how you get from the meeting with the director and stage manager and the set designer and the customer about what we're going to do in color and you develop a, a lighting plan. How does that work? We work a lot in CAD, in, in computerized drafting. And I will get a floor plan of the set and elevations and renderings of what the set is. And I insert those into my CAD program that superimposes the lighting plot over the top of that. And then based on what the set is, I then adjust and move the lighting instruments to where they need to be, make the appropriate notations as to what color they need to be and where they need to be focused. Because the, the Palladium in particular is not your typical theater. The Palladium is a renovated church. There is no fly loft like you would have in a normal theater. So we have to do a lot of our lighting prep before the set even gets in. So we actually spend a whole day of a lighting pre-hang because in many cases, once the scenery is in, we can't even get to the lighting positions. Mm -hmm. So we've been known to put ladders on stage at exactly the right place where a platform is going to be and measure up the ladder and put a piece of tape on the ladder where the edge of a platform is gonna be and then focus lights based on where that is on an imaginary set. Because we knew that once the set was going to be in place, we couldn't get to that light. There would be no physical way to get to it. So it takes a little bit of creativity. Our typical schedule is we come in for a day and we do a bunch of lighting work like that. And then the next day or day and a half the set gets loaded in and then we come back in and once the set's in we focus the front of house lighting as needed on the rest of the set and then start getting actors on stage and singers on stage right away. For the size and scale of the productions we do it's actually a very quick production schedule. We do not have the luxury of sitting for an entire day saying all right let's look at this lighting cue. Let's look at this lighting cue. Mm -hmm. Uh, we pretty much have to keep it all moving and I'm creating lighting cues while they may be rehearsing an entirely different scene on stage because we have to get ahead of it and get it all into the computer. And then we get back and we look at it through the process of run-throughs. We go, no, that works. No, that doesn't work. No, I need more face light over there. No, this needs to be a follow spot cue. And it's a, it's a, it's an evolving process. And we were, we were making changes. I was reprogramming and making changes for 45 minutes after the final dress rehearsal. And then we came back in two hours before opening night and we made some more changes. On an entirely different hat, I'm the dramaturg for Job Site Theater's production of Carol Churchill's Cloud Nine at the Strass Center for the Performing Arts. And it's a, it's a wonderfully hysterical British comedy, which I had the pleasure of being the company manager, production coordinator of the San Francisco production of it back in the mid-80s that was done with the playwright in attendance. And we ran for 280 some odd performances. So given my background with that script and with that play, assisting the director and making notes and doing some research for the actors and giving them some background. And, and then I also do a lot of work with two of our best prep school programs here in the area, uh, Berkeley Prep in Tampa and Shorecrest Prep in, here in St. Petersburg. I light all their productions and they're really wonderful to work with. Amazingly talented high school students. Mm. Amazing. 
amazing. So it's, that's a real, uh, a real joy. And then I will probably do a couple of productions for Hillsborough Community College. I'll light them and I may design the sets for them as well. And you also are the theater manager for Hillsborough Community College Main Stage. I manage the performing arts facilities for Hillsborough Community College Ebor Campus, which consists of the Main Stage Theater, which is a 246-seat proscenium house, and the Studio Theater downstairs, which is a flexible space black box. And I've been in that position now. Uh, I will be, I'm finishing my 10th year. 10 years. Oh my goodness. I've never worked at one place for 10 years in my life. So I do have to ask if you ever sleep. Uh, sleep is for sissies. Because any of these <laughs> seems like full-time. We like to think that we are the best-equipped, best-run community college theater in the state, and certainly for our size, the best-equipped facility in the Tampa Bay area. We have a really wonderful visiting guest artist series, especially on the modern dance side, Tampa Theater Festival, and we also, in the studio theater, we were one of the venues for the first-ever Tampa Fringe. I actually helped open that building in the late 70s when it first opened. I actually was the guest lighting designer for the first show in both of those theaters. And that was just before I moved back to New York to work for the Joffrey Ballet. And then 10, 11 years ago, I pretty much came in off of the road to, quite frankly, take care of my elderly aging parents. And I was very, very fortunate that this job opened up at Hillsborough Community College at the same time that I really made the decision that I had to stop running off to here and running off to there and running off to there to do shows. The theater community in the Tampa Bay area, in Pinellas County and Hillsborough County, you're very connected to that, obviously. And, and what's your take on what's happening in theater in, in the Tampa Bay area? I'm old enough to have seen the ups and the downs and the pendulum swings and old enough and experienced enough in this area to have some perspective on it. And, and I would say that we're in very good shape considering where we have been. And I'm also very pleased to say that when I travel and I'm elsewhere or when I'm hosting visitors in from out of town and I take them to see productions by any one of our theater companies here on both sides of the bay, they always come away with, oh my goodness, I had no idea that you were doing this kind of work here. I had a casting director in from Los Angeles that I was working on something with, and I took him to see a show at the now-defunct Gorilla Theater, and he went, this is better than, than what we usually see in Los Angeles at this level. We've got a really good talent pool in the area right now. We have a plethora of producing organizations, whether it's Freefall and American Stage, predominantly on the Pinellas side of the bay, and then on the Hillsborough County side of the bay between Stageworks, Jobsite, Tampa Rep. I, I, I find it interesting that the two theater companies with the largest budgets and the biggest facilities are on the Pinellas County side of the bay, and the smaller professional theater companies are all on the Hillsborough County side of the bay. And, and I'm not absolutely certain why that is. I, I do think some of it has to do with the, the omnipresent Strass Center for the Performing Arts, which I think does affect the, I mean, I think if the Strass were on this side of the bay, I don't think you would have both free fall and American stage of the size and scale that they are. You know, I, I, think, I think the state of theater is good. I mean, I have seen so many professional, semi-professional theater companies come and go in the Tampa Bay area over time. Uh, whether it was the old Tampa Players or the Players. I mean, there have been a number of them that did very, very good work. And for one reason or another, 
whether it was personalities or finance or conflicts between artistic directors and boards of directors. They've, they've come and gone over the years. But we've sort of reached a point of stasis now where I think we're doing good work on both sides of the bay. So one of the things that I sometimes think about is we, we draw a lot of tourists, especially Pinellas, I think, more than Hillsborough. But we draw a lot of tourists and tourists come to the Dali and tourists come to the Chihuly and they come to the beaches, of mm-hmm. course. And some visitors go to, you know, Second Saturday in St. Pete or mm-hmm. Dunedin. There's plenty of people who visit this area and enjoy the arts. I'm not sure that people visiting this area have any sense of the great theater we have here. From a smaller theater like Studio at 620 that's mm-hmm. doing really, you know, innovative. Right. I hate the use of the term local. You know, I joke that the Tampa Bay area is roughly the same size and population as Vienna, Austria. Do you think that in Vienna they refer to local theater? We have to stop using the term local. We also should stop using the term regional. To me, regional is a term that was created by people in New York City to make sure that everybody knew that what you were doing was not New York. I think those are both terms we need to get away from. We need to glorify what we have here. We're, depending upon which set of statistics you look at, we're anywhere from the 11th to the 13th largest metropolitan market in the United States. And as such, you know, we should behave as one. It's just... It's Tampa Bay Theater. It's, you know, it's Tampa Bay Performing Arts. It's St. Petersburg Arts. It's Tampa Arts. To me, there's part of it also, part of it is like making an excuse. Well, it's only regional. Well, it's only local. Someone referred to me in a review as a local designer. Well, you know, you know look at my credits. A lot of my credits have, are nowhere near here. Like the Lincoln Center yeah. for Performing Arts, yeah, for I mean, example. Yeah, yeah. You know, every once in a while, you have. To, I feel like, you know, you have to go back to New York and do something in New York and... Uh, I, I unfortunately refer to it sometimes as getting the good housekeeping seal of approval. The period of the 30s in theater in the United States it has piqued my interest, and I, I have joked on occasion that if I was ever to go back and get an advanced degree, it would probably be in something that has to do with theater history, and I would probably immediately get in uh, a plane and go to George Mason University outside of Washington, D.C., where the entire archives of the Federal Theater Project resides. The initial contact was reading Jean Rosenthal. Jean Rosenthal was the first real female lighting designer in the industry, but she started out as a stage manager. She wrote a very classic book called The Magic of Light. And in The Magic of Light, one of the stories she tells early on is when she stage managed this very important production called The Cradle Will Rock, which is the production that got John Houseman and Orson Welles fired from the Federal Theater Project. Well, getting them fired from the Federal Theater Project begat the Mercury Theater, which begat Mercury Theater on the Air, which begat War of the Worlds, which begat Mercury Theater on Film, which begat Citizen Kane. And and having read this incredible description of The Cradle Will Rock and what had happened with the crazy opening night where the, the federal government tried to shut them down and they had to move the production to another theater. And I was very lucky. I actually produced a fully staged version of The Cradle Will Rock for the now defunct Tampa Players back in the 80s. Reading other things about the Federal Theater Project, John Houseman's autobiographies, uh, Hallie Flanagan, who was the woman who was in charge of the entire Federal Theater Project's book, Arena, um, some other wonderful books that are out of print, like one that's called When Theater Was a Weapon, because the labor unions were very, very heavily involved with theater in New York City in the 30s. And, and, and in doing so, I learned that the Tampa Bay area, and Tampa in particular, 
had a very, very important role in the Federal Theater Project that I was really not familiar with. We're talking 1935, 36, 37, and Tampa was one of the few cities in the entire country that had two units, two companies, two theater companies that operated as part of the Federal Theater Project. One of which was at the Rialto Theater, which still exists on Upper Franklin Street in downtown Tampa. It's now an event center. It doesn't really have all the trappings of a theater anymore. But that company was comprised of a lot of semi-retired vaudevillians and burlesque and and. Well, it was, it was kind of a variety of, of people that were there. And then the other unit was headquartered only about half a mile away at the Centro Asturiano Theater at the corner of Nebraska and Palm Avenue. Well, the distinction of that unit was that it was the only unit in the entire United States, part of the Federal Theater Project, that was a Spanish language unit. Wow. Now, that's hard to believe today that if we were suddenly to have a federal theater project, you know, we would be talking about Spanish language units in a dozen cities. In the late 30s, the only city that a Spanish language unit came up was here in Tampa at the Centro Asturiano. There were some very, very famous premieres that were done there. It can't happen here. Sinclair Lewis, commissioned by the Federal Theater Project, and the goal was for it to premiere simultaneously in 30 cities across the United States. Well, it did, and in one of those cities was at the Centro Asturiano in Espanol, which is pretty remarkable. Here's the kicker. Here's the kicker, and this I've only really discovered recently. My mother had a mentor by the name of Gluck Sandor. Luxander and his wife, Felicia Sorrell, were in charge of the federal dance program in New York City. And then my mother had an aunt I never met, known to me only as Auntie B. And her ex-husband was the well-known American artist, George Alt, A-U-L-T. And I was going through some old papers, and sure enough, here's a photograph of my Auntie B who is the assistant director of the Federal Art Program in New York City. Well, we really haven't talked about your work with ballet companies in the United States. So. In the United States, in the Caribbean, and in South America, and then also I worked uh, on the entire United States tour of the Tokyo Ballet, and the entire United States tour of the Moscow Classical Ballet with full-length Swan Lake. Oh yeah, been there, done that, got all the t-shirts. So you've had a wonderful theatrical life. Uh, it's certainly been varied. I, I've, I've dipped my toe into uh, all aspects of it, uh, from management to production and design, and I'm very grateful for the opportunities that I've had. Um, I've seen most of the United States. I joke that I know where the light switch is in every Holiday Inn in the United States, Canada, and a good chunk of Central and Latin America. I have yet to really do anything substantial in Europe or Asia. If, if somebody calls up and the phone rings and asks me to go, I'll, I'll, I'll go renew my passport very quickly. So I'm here with Keith Arsenault. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, my pleasure. I'm Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, the Creative Pinellas podcast. Sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, visit St. Petersburg Clearwater and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. 
Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. And if you're enjoying this program, we hope you'll take a moment to give us a review. It's easy to subscribe to on your favorite podcast service. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.